This is the fourth Sunday of Lent. You can see that uh, the clergy are all wearing rose-colored vestments. We get to do this two times a year, on the second Sunday of Advent and in the fourth Sunday of Lent. And for us, or at least some of us, it's a great pleasure twice a year to be able to wear a liturgical color that accords with our political and social principles. <laughs> All the readings today are about our relationship between God and each other. And so I thought I'd preach on all of them from Numbers, from Ephesians, and from John's Gospel. In the readings today, it's very similar to the former lectionary, the before we went to the Revised Common Lectionary, where normally the Old Testament reading and the Gospel were thematically connected, as they are today. And then uh, the middle reading sort of poodles along on its own. But these readings are all important, so I'm going to preach about them. The first one from Numbers uh, is what, what is called in biblical scholarship either a wandering passage or a murmuring passage. And I like murmuring better because this is a reading about parish life in the ancient Near East wandering in the wilderness. The people are mad at Moses for bringing him out there. Remember I mentioned last week, I talk about this from time to time, Jerry Witherspoon, a member of St. Jude's Church in Cupertino. He was a military man, went to West Point, and one time he just decided as an exercise he'd read the biblical account of the uh, exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land, and he'd try using his expertise to figure out how long it would take to go from Egypt to the Promised Land with all the men, women, and children, all the stuff, uh, you know, that you have to take, your food, you have to lug all the stuff. How long would this take? And he figured, based on the distance and the number of people as could best be calculated by the biblical witness, that it would take about three weeks. So what are they doing for 40 years in the wilderness? Father Emerson leaned over to me at the 9 o'clock liturgy and said, how in the world wandering in the wilderness did he get the capacity to be able to cast a bronze serpent? <laughs> you know? So there was some time involved in this sort of thing. And of course it's a metaphor for the wanderings, isn't it, of the people as they seek their identity. And by extension in our own spiritual life, when we meditate on these passages, they're about how we understand the internal wanderings that we all go through in our spiritual pilgrimage. How does this impact our emotional, spiritual, and mental states as we think about who we are and we struggle with adversity and we're fearful and anxious. People don't like the food. They don't, they don't have enough water to drink. They're worried about what's going to happen to them. How is this going to work? And so it says in the narrative that God sends a bunch of fiery serpents to bite the people. So they get afflicted by serpents. And Moses is caught in a triangle, isn't he? Between He's caught in a triangle between the uh, people, 
and God. So he chooses a quick fix. And he casts the serpent in bronze. And when they look at it, they're healed. So one of the ways we could understand this is a bunch of things to say that are going on here. One of them is that uh, serpents are also images of healing in the ancient Near East. And certainly the Greeks understood them to be images of healing. Have you ever gone into a medical office and you've seen the, the snakes that are intertwined? I think it's called a caduceus, right? It was a sign of healing. And we're going to hear about that in the gospel. So the people look at the serpent and they're healed. This is a reading in one sense about the healing power of God always present. It's also about doubtful connections that are made often by people, even biblical writers, between uh, what happens to them and who caused it. So it's the narrative that tells us that God sent the serpents. They wandered into a place where there were a lot of poisonous snakes and they got bit. And Moses provides the opportunity for them to be healed. We live in a culture, by the way, where most of the time we resort to the quick fix. That's our solution to difficult things. <clears throat> I said at 9 o'clock <clears throat> a number of years ago, uh, the diocese that we're in, the Diocese of El Camino Real, went through a very significant process of restructuring, which for many people these days is a species of the quick fix. So you do the restructuring and you think now you're going to solve all of your problems. Sometimes that has to be done. And in this case, certainly some of that had to be done. But I remember as we were in the process, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church visited us, Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey, and I had a private conversation with her and she said to me, are you sure that you're not seeking a structural solution to something that requires an adaptive change? You know what that means? It means how do you change people's behavior? Not the structure. That's safe. But when you create an environment whereby the people or people need to change their habits, you can also begin to change the way in which <clears throat> they interact with one another in relationship. And as time went on, one of the lessons that was learned by the people of Israel was as they were wandering and reflecting. It's a metaphor for them. The people wandering and figuring out who they were and what their vocation was. Moses, as the leader of the people of Israel, was continuously confronted with the necessity to turn the focus of the people of Israel away from the place of remembered good times to a place where they now could see and understand their vocation in depth. They could begin to understand more fully God's purposes for them and how they might now live into the covenant that was created between them and Abraham. How do we do this? How then must we live? And so this is about the possibility that you and I can change. And it's about the possibility that God's healing power is always available to us no matter what. And we don't speak here 
of healing understood as curing. Healing is the process of the maturing and the strengthening of your internal spiritual, emotional, and mental states such that you can meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you. And, you know, I've been a pastor for a while, and I can tell you this, that there are a lot of people who don't get cured, but they get healed in terms of the way they look at the world, in terms of the way they interact with people, in terms of the creation of a more grateful and generous disposition as the result of God's presence in their lives. So this reading from Numbers during the season of Lent, when we think about repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives, uh, is important. In the reading from the letter to the Ephesians, you know, I talk about a lot about things like this, and some of you may say, well, I don't know why you do so much. But uh, also, we live in the age of the Internet. So uh, very often through the month, I'll get an email from some parishioner or somebody who's, and say, gee, you know, I just saw on the Internet, or I, look, I looked up on Wikipedia, and it says, Paul didn't write Ephesians. Well, you know, we've been talking about it for about 125 years. I made a pact with myself when I went to seminary that I wasn't going to not say anything about stuff like that. Just because somebody says something doesn't make it so. But that there, there's a lot of uh, scholarly evidence that would support the view that he didn't write Ephesians. Based on the textual criticism based on the knowledge of the ancient languages, based on Paul's own style of dictation in the authentic letters and how he wrote and what the manners of speech he had were and so forth, and how that compares to the, to the works that are attributed to him. So that's why I'm, I, I merely mention it. It's not a deal breaker in terms of somebody's faith, although when they first hear it, they might think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So one of the ways you can look at the letter to the Ephesians is a sort of cover letter to all the letters of Paul. Because it is, it is a grand tour of all Paul's great themes. And today in Ephesians, what we get is some, some, some conversation about the importance of the presence of God's grace in our lives, the, presence, uh, the, the importance and centrality of our faith and the saving power of God, and that by virtue of the presence of God's grace in our lives, we now become transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love in the world. That we are able to be people that can transform ourselves and the lives of others as we come into relationship with them and bring godly motives, clean motives, and a generous heart and it is fueled by the knowledge that we are the recipients of God's grace, God's favor freely given without regard for our merit. You don't have to earn it. You get it. And you've got it. And once you realize that, it has enormous liberating power for people who wish now to make a difference in the world, as we're all called to be. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. And that's the job of everybody in the Christian church, the community of the baptized. And so that's what we get from the reading from Ephesians today. In the gospel, we have 
one of the most famous biblical passages in the whole Bible. It's called The Gospel in a Nutshell by a great many people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then John goes on to say that Jesus lifted up on the cross somehow relates to the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. The healing power of God looking at two images that are hardly um, nice. Jesus on the cross and the serpent in the wilderness. There's a theory of the atonement. Let me say this again. I talked about this at the soup supper last time. There are many theories of the atonement. Some of them are more popular than others. But as Alan Richardson said in his little book in 1935, I read it in seminary, not in 1935, it was much later than that. But in his chapter on the atonement, he said, you know, uh, there are many theories of the atonement. And the church has always understood them as theories. And because of that, you and I are free to make up our own theory about the atonement. Now, there are certain very popular ones, and in many circles, even in parts of the Episcopal Church, the most popular theory of the atonement is something called the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Let's not get too deeply into that this morning. We may another time. But I mention this merely because there is another theory of the atonement which has gone out of favor with many, but we got from a medieval theologian by the name of Abelard. Remember the play Abelard and Heloise? Years ago, Abelard was a, was a medieval theologian of some importance. And he came up with the theory of the atonement known as the moral exemplarist theory. That the looking at the cross, the looking at the cross provides the person looking with a moral example of how God redeems us out of our suffering and by extension can do that for you too. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, this has certain, certain good things about it. And then I thought when I was writing my sermon this week about the bishop who ordained me a deacon, C. Kilmer Myers, many years ago. He and I were having a conversation in his office. He was the Bishop of California, so it was up on Knob Hill in San Francisco. And he was telling me a story about being in Nuremberg after World War II at a theological conference taking place the same time that the Nuremberg trials were going on. And he said, I got to Nuremberg, and of course, most of Nuremberg wasn't much higher than this altar rail when I was there. We bombed it flat. So he said, I was getting kind of blue after about 10 days there. 
And I was uh, at a conference, and there was a prominent Lutheran uh, pastor who had been a great um, part of the resistance in Germany against Hitler and all of the things that were going on. And he lived through all this bombing in Nuremberg, and he was there and so on. He said, gee, I just... I'm having some trouble now. I've been here for about a week, and I, what, what, what do you do to cope with this? And he said, keep your eyes on the cross. Only look at the cross. Keep your eyes on the cross. And I thought to myself, you know, that might have some that might have legs in terms of thinking about what it means when John speaks about the Savior being raised on the cross as the sign of our redemption, an unpleasant image. Now, there's another theme that goes along with this because it will come up again and again as we move through Lent and in the early part of Easter, and that is that in John's Gospel, and we have it today, we speak about God and Jesus as the light. The light that shines in the darkness. The illuminative processes of God at work in the world and in the hearts of people, showing us all of those aspects of our character that are godly, and that provide the opportunity for us to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love, and light that shines on our dark places and shows with great clarity the ways in which we need to make the adaptive changes necessary to live a life that is congruent with the purposes of God for all of the people that God made and called good. And so when we get to Easter and we begin the great 50 days, we have in the sanctuary the Paschal Candle, the light of Christ, which signifies the light of Christ to the community of faith, leading the way, showing them uh, the way in the midst of the darkness, and also internally as the light of Christ present to us. It's a wonderful image, this idea of light, this idea of clarity this idea of coming to a fuller understanding of God in our own lives, of the healing presence of God, of the way in which we somehow can transform our character in this way. So this week, think about the healing power of God. Think about the presence of God, which never leaves you, ever, even if you think God is very far away from you. Think about the grace of God, the energy and the power to be able to uh, be a transparency and a reflection of God's love. And finally, give thanks for the light of Christ, which will always be there to show you the way. Amen.